you got the email from Satoshi. Tell us, what was that like when you read it for the first time? All right, everyone, welcome back to Bitcoin is Hard. This is a Choice App production about Bitcoin and personal finance. Today, I'm super excited for our guest, Brian Bishop, who's a Bitcoin core contributor and has seen the inside of a lot of very big like finance crypto organizations. And so today, I just want to talk to him about what it's like being a core contributor and then kind of as Bitcoiners are thinking about the personal finances, just any insights we can gain from him on kind of how these, you know, institutions work. And so, Brian, kick off on this. You got the white paper email from Satoshi. What was that like when you read it for the first time? Yeah, so uh, I was very fortunate. Um, I was 19 years old. It was 2009. And I received an email January 10th, 2009, announcing Bitcoin, the software release of Bitcoin. Now, as those might know, uh, 2008 was the release of the, one of the versions of the white paper. 2009, January was when uh, the software was released. And I received an email actually from uh, Eugene Little, uh, who is a prominent figure in the transhumanist community and uh, somewhat uh, from the cypherpunk side of things, uh, forwarding along Satoshi's email uh, to, a, to another mailing list that I was on. And then I also received an email from Satoshi through the Peer-to-Peer Foundation mailing list in February 2009 when he announced Bitcoin a uh, second or third time. And so in January, when I looked at it, I, I looked at it and, you know, I was 19 years old and it was just after the 2008 financial crisis. And I was looking at this and I was like, this is, this is a piece of garbage. I mean, first of all, it only runs on Microsoft Windows and you can't have a financial revolution if you only run on Windows. And it turns out, turns out Bitcoin uh, fixed that over time. That was not actually an issue. But um, the interesting thing at the time was that, you know, 2007, 2008, was a period where there were a lot of proposals floating around for alternative currencies. And so from my perspective at the time, Bitcoin was actually just another player entering that field. And, and the problem was is that many of those other proposals, uh, save for um, uh, what is now called RumplePay, uh, actually had no software implementation really. They were like timeshares or other, other weird things. And uh, yeah, I just uh, didn't like the concept of money. I just thought it was stupid. Like green pieces of paper that you're trading around and like this is, can be traded for goods and services is just like, it just seems absurd. Um, why, why would we denote any value to green pieces of paper? So what got me into Bitcoin later on in about 2013 was I realized there is actually, you know, code involved here. And I talked with some of the Bitcoin developers and I realized these were my people. And I was thinking, you know, well, I'm good at code. I understand this. This makes a lot more sense than any other financial technology at the moment. And so that's how that's how I got involved in Bitcoin. Talk to us about these mailing lists, because I actually love the way you describe that. And I hadn't thought about this before. So, OK, so in 2009, when I was hanging out on MySpace and Facebook, like chatting with people, there were mailing lists and there were different kinds of mailing lists. So the same way there's groups that develop online right now around any sort of thing and people chat about them. I hadn't even thought about that. So so Satoshi himself went and spread it to a couple lists and then other people would effectively retweet it or like repost it to another list. And uh, so you, and then you talked about, yes, the difference between when he released the white paper to the, like, what was the name or is there a name of like that, that list where he did the white paper release to like, I believe the white paper list was released to Perry Metzger's cryptography mailing list in 2008. And then I believe there were subsequent emails from Satoshi on that mailing list, I think. Um, 
And then the software release was also there. And then on the peer-to-peer foundation mailing list, which was ran by Michelle Bowens at the time, and I think still is, uh, uh, it was February. So it was both software and I think also a link to the white paper. And, and what would these people do? So then if you're, so if you're reading it either on the original list or one of these reposted lists, when we hear about these like early CPU miners, what were they doing? They were clicking on the file, like downloading Bitcoin core to their machine and just hitting open or like, what, what did that look like off of those initial emails? Oh, um, for the initial users of Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a link to the website. They would click the link to the website. They'd load the page and they'd see software. They'd download it. And then if you were running Windows, you could you could run the software. Um, and uh, early on, largely, a lot of developers were mainly interested. And so uh, uh, compiling the code was you know another option as well once that was released on SourceForge or something. Yeah. And you talked about how as soon as kind of the software element or you, you realize that Hey, there is software behind this. Um, not just a proposal. Looks like it's gaining traction. Um, your comp or your confidence in it grew, or your interest in it. You're like, oh, there's something here. Grew. The other thing I wanted to ask you about that's that's hard for um, I think some people to envision is the way that like Bitcoin improvement proposals work. So, is there a fast version of like your initial thoughts on the software to like today, like what's the super fast version of that? Of just like, explain to us the way that Bitcoin gets built. Well, Bitcoin gets built by essentially a team of volunteers that are loosely, you know, not even, not even associated really, but they just, you know, choose to work together from time to time to review each other's code, look at pull requests. And then in the Bitcoin core uh, node and wallet implementation, you know, there are a few maintainers that will merge code periodically from contributors, depending on whether there is a wide community support for that particular change. Changes that involve perhaps the wallet uh, or networking layer are sometimes simpler to make because there's less downstream effects of making changes there. Uh, but changes on the consensus side regarding how do you validate a transaction and making something that was once valid now invalid or making something that was once invalid now valid uh, becomes a much more difficult change. And that, that's called a consensus change. Uh, the Bitcoin improvement proposals or BIPs were one way of organizing everyone to have a standard uh, place to check for these proposals um, as they matured. And so for making proposals and updates to Bitcoin other than just source code changes, especially other than minor changes, you go through BIPs. And the way that BIPs work is specified in BIPs 1 and 2. And essentially, the champion of an idea says, hey, I have an idea. And he goes and talks to various people. He brings it forward to the mailing list and says, hey, who would be interested in this? What do you guys think? You collect feedback. And eventually, as the idea matures and an implementation is decided upon or a reference implementation is made to support this concept of whatever the, whatever the improvement or proposal is, then it can become a BIP and the BIP, I mean, it's not a, it's not a standards body. A BIP is really just reference material, you know, it's informational and uh, uh, people can collaborate on those. And, you know, eventually there might be a pull request in Bitcoin core to implement that or, uh, but not necessarily all standards need to be implemented in Bitcoin core. So that's mm-hmm. also helpful. And, right. And so what's your, I want to ask two questions. I want to ask you about just your reaction to kind of, 
the common phrase that we hear a lot of like, well, it's like, it's hard to improve Bitcoin or it's hard to improve Bitcoin or Bitcoin's not, you know, innovating or whatever. I want to get your reaction to that. And then I also want to get your reaction to how does like you and a lot of others have, you've worked on the volunteer side of like volunteering for like working on Bitcoin core and just doing it as an open source project. And then you're also like, because of the success of the Bitcoin open source project, you're also like a highly sought after like professional now on the like commercial side of software. So whichever of those you want to tackle first of just how to, how does commercial software and open source software like work together? And then what's your reaction to just kind of when people say like, you know, Bitcoin is like old and slow and not improving? Well, I, I would say that Bitcoin is somewhat slow in development terms for things that get widely deployed. It does take a while. But at the same time, I would also point out that there's a lot of really interesting work that goes on in Bitcoin that most people never hear about. Uh, for example, uh, one of the shining gems of uh, Bitcoin, in my opinion, is a library called libsecp 256 k one which is a cryptographic library that was developed specifically for Bitcoin that can do transaction signing and validation. And it actually replaced what was previously used called OpenSSL in Bitcoin Core. And the, the, the level of engineering prowess and, and just the, the high principled way that the code was written in libsecp is really quite impressive. I mean, the level of mutation testing and just so many tricks were thrown out to make this code uh, work well and you know, have minimum number or no side channels um, as much as possible. It, just the, the whole way that project was approached is really a, a shining example of, uh, of cryptography for basically every project everywhere, in my opinion. And so when you really dig down into it, there are interesting areas of development that Bitcoin is going down. I mean, you know, one other really interesting one is uh, uh, reproducible deterministic builds. Um, with the Gideon project, uh, Bitcoin helped push that along because we needed a way to do reproducible distributed builds where everyone would take the same source code and end up with the same binaries. The downloadable, clickable binaries need to be made the exact same way so that if there's one difference in one and another difference in another, you can detect that. Um, so that's a, that's a very, very critical um, part of it. Now, when it comes to the commercial side, um, I would say the story and situation has really improved recently with the proliferation of developer grants from companies to support open source software development in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies even. And so that's been really nice to see. And, and I'm, I'm a full supporter of that. I think it's great to get developers uh, to have those grants where it's not even really a, you know, a corporate um, pressure sort of thing where the corporation is trying to get their pet feature in or something. It's really just funding these volunteers. Uh, so that's great. But on the other hand, I would also say that the, the open source uh, free software mode of development through volunteers contributing their time and resources is very different from commercial software development. And um, yeah, not, not a lot of people know, but before Bitcoin, I had experience in commercial software development um, outside of open source. You know, I was actually a, you know, early 2010s, I was a web developer. I was doing web applications. And so my experience was on that side of things. And, you know, I got more involved in Bitcoin and learned more about cryptography and the software stack, consensus, distributed systems, all sorts of things. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge sometimes bridging the two worlds because um, from the perspective of like um, like SaaS tech startups, you know, that they're doing software as a service or something, you know, they they think of it as oh, Bitcoin, okay, what's the service provider that we integrate with and we're done. Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. like okay, what what API. Uh, are we going to pay for and, and we're done? And it's like, well, it's not, it's not really that easy. There's all these, you know, different aspects you have to consider. And uh, that, that makes it certainly interesting. Um, that's going... why I thought to put a specific on that. That's why I thought it was very interesting when Tesla went and just put BTC pay server, like in their checkout flow. Like that's why that was so interesting at the time. And they were like replying with ways to improve BTC pay server. Which I understand it's not Bitcoin Core, but that's still a very cool example to see of, you know, instead of going with a provider like that route, they just did go and download what was available. Yeah, I mean, BTC Pay Server has certainly made it uh, pretty easy to go and install your own payment processor. And I think on the back end, it even, you can even tell it to go like do trades or something with your own accounts at exchanges. It's really interesting. Yeah. When, when did you feel that... so? When I've talked to others also that have been involved, like as long as you have, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, wow, like it's made it this far, like just kind of feeling, do you, like, do you have that? Or like, when, when did you feel like, wow, Bitcoin is going to be really, really big and kind of, yeah. Oh, almost immediately. I didn't have any question. Um, Bitcoin is, is such an interesting project. There's, there's just so many uh, different layers of, of technology here and the complexity of how it's put together and the choices of why it's put together in that particular way in, in some cases are more a matter of lore at this point but um it, it's really quite interesting that it even works at all um yeah i so okay i like your word lore and because i want to all so i'm very interested in just getting your very general reactions about just what it was like being the co-founder of like avanti now custodia and just your your work with FTX and things like that, because there is a lot of lore around Bitcoin of the like, be your own bank, don't like, don't trust verify, like those kind of things in it. And very often in just kind of the most basic of basic Twitter days, it feels like both those concepts like are at odds with each other of just like, you know, Bitcoin's becoming financialized, Bitcoin's becoming co-opted or whatever, you know, all those like general statements. What, what is it like working at the internet? Like you've, you've, you've been as much a part of the open source, like you've just been such a part of the open source story, but you've been such a part of like the commercial like story also. That's like, you have to have a lot of thoughts about that middle. Yeah. I mean, I would say you've cut to the issue directly, you know, in 2014, when I joined Ledger X, it was a startup that you know, recently started and they wanted to be the first federally regulated Bitcoin options exchange, derivatives exchange clearing house. And, you know, I was looking at this opportunity and I had a few thoughts going on in my head. One was that if Bitcoin is going to continue and it's going to be widely adopted, then I believe that it will be regulated in some capacity. Um, I believe that in order to get these digital bearer assets in as many hands as possible, it's going to have to go through public infrastructure, public markets, and get regulated. My concern was, if I was not involved, it, it may be the case that the regulatory approach that develops may be counter to the goals of privacy and freedom that we're all interested in, 
with a hard bearer asset like Bitcoin. And so part of my motivation, besides just pure greed, was making sure that, you know, that these regulated uh, uh, entities, you know, are making good proposals to regulators and that there is a good um, passageway of ideas between this sort of free market crypto wild west ideology and this whole regulated ideology. And, you know, I, to be honest, the, the two the two ideologies are quite at odds from time to time. Um, and I, I believe it's important, though, to speak both languages, because if we want to convince the enemy of the value of freedom and privacy for human flourishing, you have to speak on both sides. You can't just make the argument from one side or the other. And um, yeah, so anyway, that's that's why I got into regulated fintech. And so that was LedgerX. They got acquired uh, last year by FTX uh, US and um, yeah, started um, a bank with Caitlin Long called Custodia. Previously, it was Avanti out of Wyoming in 2020. And the idea there was the same thing. You know, I did this once with a federally regulated options exchange. Let's do it for banking too. You know, we all know it's time for banking to get disrupted. And there has to be a regulated vehicle to do that. Yeah. So in that understanding both languages, something that I think is interesting is that if you sit down one-on-one with anyone who's works in like regulated markets and explain, this is what Bitcoin is. This is the ideals of Bitcoin. This is how it's better than, you know, the current entrenched system or whatever. Most of the time, I feel like a one-on-one conversation, they'll agree with you. Like they'll agree like this, the, uh, the, the ideals and the aspiration, like totally same page. And what I think happens is a lot of times, speaking in generalities, people might not believe that like, oh, it can, like, they're not optimistic about that future being possible. And so they're like, this is as good as it will ever get. Yes, there's frustrating bureaucracy. Yes, there is all this stuff, but such and such, like we need this and blah, 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 blah. And here's all the reasons like, you know, why it won't work. And like, what I think is interesting is that more and more, people like you are just changing like one thing at a time being like, Nope, solve that objection. Nope. Solve that objection. Nope. Solve that. And it's like, yeah, I I would say, I would say this comes from a belief that, I mean, yeah, there are political things that you can change and you do political action to change things. But another way to change how the world works is to invent a new thing, to build technology that does something better than was previously done before. And there's a little bit of an element of, you know, uh, don't don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, or it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Um, and and that, that plays into it a little bit. Yeah. What the people, people that are building like the, so I was going to ask about, yes, what we're seeing is we're seeing cryptocurrency exchanges become banks and we're seeing banks become cryptocurrency exchanges. And so you have, everyone is on, like for every person like you who came from crypto, cryptography, and then joined regulated fintech, as you said, I like both those words. There's everyone who spent their entire career in regulated fintech and then is now bridging over or whatever. And for the same thing of like, oh, the that we can see the ideals and we can build this thing. What do you, um, and so I guess in, you've kind of already led to it. Like you believe that the ideals of Bitcoin are still intact. 
like you do you believe the ideals of bitcoin are still just fully intact and like i guess like is the revolution on sket on time and on budget Oh, I, I would say so. I mean, Bitcoin still exists. It still does what, you know, what it's capable of doing. And I don't think that there's much that can change that. What what could change is how governments react to it and what businesses are allowed to do. But I mean, largely, though, from an individual point of view, the the tool of Bitcoin is still you know available. Um, and I just hope that as there becomes more regulation around how businesses play in the financial markets when it comes to cryptocurrency, that we remember the values that we started with, which were, you know, freedom, privacy, hard money, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the, what's your take on like web three, web four, web five? Like oh, what? I, I lost count a long time ago. I, oh man. Um, uh, I guess I haven't found any particular utility for myself in, in those uh, Web3 and o, and Plus. Um, um, yeah, like in Web5, that is decentralized identity did stuff. Um, there's certainly some good standards coming online for that. But again, though, I mean, in the work that I've done, I haven't found a, you know, a common use case really to do that. I mean, I still get headaches thinking about Web of Trust and how, you know, originally we had a, an attempt at Web of Trust with PGP and gpg and you know that kind of isn't used anymore you know and it's considered to be failed um and so at the end of the day you are going to need something like a web of trust uh i don't know i don't know key management is hard and then you have key revocation and it's difficult is the digital identity stuff connected to any of the like issues that like regulated fintech has with crypto at all is it connected well, it's somewhat connected. Um, it comes from a root problem in cryptocurrency and, and security in general, where if you want to send Bitcoin to someone, you have to get their address. So they send you their address. Well, the problem is that when you're signing a Bitcoin transaction, how do you know that you're signing a transaction that is spending to the right address? So, you know, you say, well, you know, I asked my friend and he told me the address, you know, that should be the end of it. Well, Unfortunately, it's not. And there's so many different ways an attacker could disrupt that situation. One is that, you know, the attacker could intercept your communication with your friend and you get a different address. And another way is like your ad- your friend might be going to their own wallet and getting an address or, or even going to the, like their exchange and saying, get new deposit address. But uh, in 2014, you know, there was this famous Dogecoin exchange that had this huge hack where the deposit addresses were all changed by an attacker. And when they were depositing Dogecoin into the exchange, they were giving it to the attacker. And so that your friend's like, oh, this is my address. My exchange says, this is my address. Here you go. Please pay this. And you pay it and you know it doesn't get there. And so all, all of these problems are related to uh, security, how to establish secure channels. And then once you have a secure channel established, what happens if, if your friend on the other end has his key stolen by an attacker? You know, And you think you're talking over a secure channel and you're not. And so you end up with this, this wrong address problem. And that's, that's somewhat related to the decentralized identity problems. And, and it has the same issues, which is if you have a key that is defining your identity and you have maybe these credentials, verifiable credentials and otherwise, you know, you have to protect the key. It has to be secure. Um, there has to be key revocation and um, all those other functions that make up decentralized identities. Um, and so... To me, I consider that to be a little bit of an unsolved problem. In practice, 
the certificate authority system that protects websites with HTTPS largely, um, you know, which protects, by the way, you know, hundreds of billions of, of dollars of transactions every year in e-commerce, uh, goes a pretty far way to protecting most users. But there are all sorts of edge cases where, you know, they might have malware on, on either your side or their side where things get a little murky. And I, I think about that problem a lot. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the current landscape for, or I should ask, I was going to say, what do you think about the current landscape of Bitcoin side chains? Be precursor to that question. What is a side chain and what is a layer two? Do you use those words interchangeably or do they, do they mean something different? Well, there's a, there's a few different definitions that are floating around. For a side chain, the original definition that I was familiar with was the concept of a chain that the Bitcoin miners would also be responsible for mining and including attestations or commitments to the state of the sidechain in the Bitcoin blockchain to some extent. And then the nodes would have to validate those rules as well. And so that would be a sidechain. It would be this extra area where different activity can occur. And in fact, that's from that concept came other ideas like extension blocks and and even weird variations that I can hardly remember now, but stuff like, like uh, if you want to look into something fun, there's like evil software extension blocks and other, <laughs> other names for wild ideas. So that was, that was the original idea of sidechain that I was familiar with. And then layer two, I would say, really refers to protocols that use the existing primitives on the base layer to achieve some sort of new functionality. In the case of Lightning, that is multi-party escrow uh, multi-party custody of a coin and establishing bilateral channels and then turning that into a network of channels where you can do hops between uh, different parties. Um, now, in practice with sidechains, perhaps the most prominent sidechain is uh, Liquid. It's the Liquid sidechain. And that one is a little bit different, actually, in that the way that it works is that there is actually a multi-sig federation that takes custody or you deposit your Bitcoin to them and then you get issued LBTC on the other side. So it's kind of like a wrapped Bitcoin. Really. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is the liquid sidechain validated by nodes on the Bitcoin network or even miners on the Bitcoin network? No. The only thing that is validated are the deposits and withdrawals into the liquid multi-sig federation, uh, the, the, the PEG or the, yeah, the, the, the multi-sig fed and uh, separately liquid exists as a series of, of its own nodes somewhere out there on, you know, on the internet um, separate from Bitcoin. And what's interesting about this is that if you squint your eyes at a very high level, it actually looks really similar to um, how some exchanges do Bitcoin custody. Even, you know, they receive Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network and then they have their own database, you know, or some other system where they do trades or whatever it is they want to do. Um, and, and what's interesting about this is that I think it's actually quite, um, it's quite good as a model and, and even cheap. And I don't mean that in the bad way because mm-hmm. you just use multi-sig, you know, on Bitcoin and that's basically free. And so it looks like a great way to experiment to me, you know, you lock up some coins and then go experiment and then come back later. Sounds yeah. great to me. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it possible? So, and then isn't it possible to you could fork liquid and create your own liquid network also, right? Like, so there could be multiples of these things for multiple different, you know, groups of people. 
Uh, in theory, yes. Um, in practice, the liquid sidechain is based off of Elements, which is another open source project. However, the federation for the multi-sig peg, I believe, is not open source from Blockstream. Mm. Um, and then this goes into um, some recent ideas that have been receiving attention, such as Fediment and Lightning Service Providers. Yeah. Um, and again, the idea is you have multi-sig and put in coins, and mm -hmm. uh, then you can get onboarded onto Lightning or Fediment or otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And rounding out the topic, just any thoughts on like stacks, RSK, or like drive chains? No, not in particular. Um, I mean, for drive chains, I would say uh, Paul Stork has been working diligently on it, and uh, I think his work is often quite interesting and, and worth review. Um, I don't think that the original drive chain BIPs are going to be uh, deployed anytime soon in Bitcoin Core. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it's definitely you know worth some attention. Mm -hmm. And kind of combining the like, the like end user like financial institution conversation with the side chain like conversation. Something that I've been envisioning in my head is, and this this is an analogy that's working in my brain for now. You know how a store has their sticker up that says we take, you know, Visa, MasterCard, Discover. Like I can see a situation where in the future, a store could put up like we take liquid lightning, like and Fediment or whatever. Like, and then there, you know, because like BTC Pay Server already works for taking lightning and taking liquid. You could even issue your own like liquid coupon to your store think, or thing. You know, I think, I think the long-term um, solution there where we're going to end up eventually is you walk into a store, you you make a purchase, and you're supposed to render payment. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where there's going to be uh, universal payment bliss, where the merchant says, hey, we want to accept Bitcoin only. Uh, and then your phone figures it out and says, well, I don't have Bitcoin, I have something else. And, you know, somehow the two are going to, you know, somehow figure it out and come to come to the point where either like the merchant is like, well, I'm going to accept a zero comp transaction, or maybe there's a trusted party involved that endorses or guarantees the funds will be delivered, something. Mm -hmm. But this idea of like people having to, like they have some sort of financial portfolio and they're going to a store and they want to make a purchase and they have to figure out like, what particular assets do I have in common with the store is just mm -hmm. absurd. That's mm -hmm. absurd. Um, you can price things in a single asset and then you can have reference and indexes against those prices to different assets. Um, and at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter what someone is paying with, as long as the value can be delivered and then converted into whatever format, uh, the, the merchant wants or vice versa or, or whatever. Um, and, and as long as like the security guarantees, uh, work out where both parties understand what's going on and what's going to happen and what can go wrong, you know, that seems like ideal to me for payments, mm -hmm. um, you know, call it universal payments or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I um, definitely can see that. And I that's very similar to a lot about what Jack Mars was talking about, like at Bitcoin um, 2022, where he just said, like, you know, no one has helped the merchant in 50 years and talked about how pick your currency on this side, pick your currency on this side, and it just gets, gets delivered. Yeah. What? Right. Because, and so another barrier to that right now, though, also is the kind of like walled, like these walled garden like payment processors. Like, so what's cool is that the Bitcoin 
and crypto like payment processors are become beginning to run in parallel at certain stores in different certain jurisdictions. But then some of them are still walled garden of only being able to receive the Bitcoin, you know, from a certain kind of um, app. So even within asset, even within asset, there's still like some friction there. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of software development that's going to be needed. And, you know, we haven't found, you know, the end all be all solution yet. Um, and maybe there isn't one. I mean, you know, universal payments is a nice, you know, fantasy. But in practice, though, it might not be achievable. Um, so we'll see. We'll find out. Yeah. So zooming out from that, like, what do you think about, like, Bitcoin is based money and like Bitcoin becoming like the reserve asset of the world or, and then stable coins, like bringing in stable coins to that too. What do you think about Bitcoin back to lending also? Well, at, at a high level, um, I'll say, I think uh, having Bitcoin be more widely proliferated would be a good thing for the economy and, and, you know, the human endeavor to figure out how to make good money and how this should work. I think Bitcoin is a very excellent contribution and should, you know, should be widely adopted um, and hopefully even understood. Um, so that would be nice. But, but I would say at a higher level, uh, what I think is important that Bitcoin brings is really this concept coming back to the forefront of bearer assets, having digital bearer assets or any bearer assets at all, and being able to do personal finance based off of that. Instead of having a stock portfolio where you have these, these stock certificates in theory being held by someone else. And I mean, there's just so many layers when you log into your stock portfolio between what you're seeing on your screen and the actual value associated with you. And it's really associated with, the, with you know, uh, many intermediaries up the chain down to all the way back to the original issuer of the, of the security of the stock. Um, and all of that has to change. I think bearer assets uh, make make a whole bunch more sense. And the beautiful thing about bearer assets is that you don't have to bear them. Someone else can bear them for you. And that's totally. where middlemen and intermediaries can come forward. But the idea that like there needs to be like this this uh, you know this predefined set of intermediaries that are of a certain regulatory structure, I think is is really uh, harmful. Um, to uh, to the development of you know better forms of human capital allocation. Yeah, well, no, and it's frustrating as the end user personal financing like your budget. It's frustrating that when you go to buy a car and if you go to buy it with the bare asset, like we'll use dollars for example, right now, if you go to buy the car with dollars, the actual dollars instead of with a loan, there's rarely a price break right now. Regardless of where you go, paying credit or paying like cash there's rarely a price break. And that's like kind of frustrating. I think that's another thing that like, uh, if like the bearer asset continues to take off, I think that's another thing that we'll see change. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that problem. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that it solves. Um, talk to us about your, this webcast, your webcast product. Web oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so webcast.org is a new cryptocurrency. It is proof of work based. And it's uh, very different. And essentially, it has no blockchain. It is a central server that operates a database for the purposes of anti-double spending. Uh, but the miners mine, you know, the web cash tokens. And uh, yeah, it's the culmination of, you know, my time in Bitcoin and, and thinking about, you know, what is actually required to make a cryptocurrency. And, you know, we're all familiar with different scalability problems in Bitcoin and 
and so on. And, you know, really the way to do scalability is have a central server. Now that's of course, completely the antithesis of what Bitcoin is. And so for that reason, I'm not saying, you know, Webcash is better than Bitcoin or is a better Bitcoin than Bitcoin. In fact, just the opposite. Webcash serves a very different purpose. I think Webcash serves the purpose of payments. And it shows a way of doing decentralized proof-of-work mining with very, very fast payments. And what's interesting about Webcash, um, I mean, first of all, you can still CPU mine it, and people have been finding that uh, pretty fun. But what's interesting about Webcash is that it's, uh, it's actually just, just really absurdly simple. In fact, um, to send Webcash, you can think of it for bit people who are more familiar with Bitcoin as kind of like sending a Bitcoin private key and you just give the secret and then they have the webcache. That's how it works. And it's, it's just, it's so fast. Um, even in person at like uh, this consensus conference uh, last week here in Austin, you know, I was giving a whole bunch of demos on my phone because someone uh, made a wonderful uh, web wallet called WebCasa for webcache. And it just works on your phone and your browser. And I was giving people demos and all they do is they scan a QR code, they open the link and they have a wallet in their browser. And people were almost, I would say, disappointed by how fast the demo was. And they were like, they were expecting something more like registration. They were expecting having to install nodes, download a blockchain. And no, there's, there's, there's nothing like that. I mean, you just get the link, you load it up, you have a browser wallet, you know, just kind of, uh, if you're familiar, um, uh, blockchain.com has a browser wallet, right? And you load it into your browser, you have, you have your web cache essentially. Um, so yeah, so, um, it's been going on for a few months now, um, you know, started in January of 2022 and um, gotten a lot of great feedback. People really like the simplicity and they have fun mining. Yeah. All right. See, so what I do with ideas like this is that I, what I'm doing now, and I've said this on the podcast, like I'm trying to just have 2022 be like, a, I'm trying to leave kind of like all old baggage behind and like all my old thoughts behind and just like start fresh with just like this is where we are right now. What does the future look like? And that's where I came up with that analogy of the like Visa, MasterCard, Discover stuff. And I love your stuff about just blissful payments and it, it um, you know, doing the conversions for everyone. One thing with like, and we've had great episodes on like Bitcoin sidechains. Say Webcash like becomes the payment standard. What? How have you been asked the question or how do you think about the question of then the conversion rate between Bitcoin and between like webcash? Like why, how does a free floating, like can a free, if Bitcoin becomes base money, can a free floating token be the standard for payments? I guess that's that. I think that's what it comes down to because, and there's like a, there's a philosophical discussion i think out there like in cryptocurrency whether we're talking about webcash or whether we're talking about a different anything different it's like can like the reason why liquid and lightning are easier to understand is because the sats are the sats the reason why other payment networks or other blockchains are hard to understand for bitcoin or for, or for myself personally is because then you're having to balance this exchange rate between bitcoin and the other coin so I don't know if I teed that up well. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say to the extent that Webcash gets adopted, it's really going to be because it's simple, easy, fast. Developers uh, are sometimes very frustrated with decentralized blockchains mm -hmm. and just having this breath of fresh air where it just it's just it's really absurdly simple, uh, I, I have to say. Um, 
that is why it might be adopted, right? And and to that extent, merchants might adopt it and there could be payments flying around and everything. Um, with regards to free floating and trading against, you know, Bitcoin and other assets, that's really the job of exchanges, right? Exchanges set up those markets and there's buyers and sellers of both assets and they figure out a price, whatever it may be. That is not my place to uh, decide anything. Um, where I think that there are still a few questions that the whole ecosystem hasn't answered is in terms of payments, you know, will there be a single thing that gets universal adoption for payments? Um, you know, maybe, maybe there is, maybe lightning is it, maybe, you know, Bitcoin on lightning is it, maybe it's not, um, I don't know. I, I think it's just, it's such yeah. a, such a broad problem though, because, um, you know, people accept these different assets and you asked about, you know, CBDCs and stable coins yep. earlier, yep. you yep. know, and that's, that's another option. And, um, to the extent that we get stable coins issued in the United States that are, you know, backed by a dollar and have a good regulatory structure, uh, that's, that's certainly interesting. In fact, in fact, um, I'm not a dollar maximalist, but I do actually believe that if the United States gets its act together with regards to stable coins and we have like a stable coin issuer in the U.S., whether private or public, whatever it may be, that, you know, is well regulated, has a good structure, one for one dollars in reserve. And, and then it's allowed for anyone to use permissionlessly around the globe, I think that would be huge. I mean, that, that would further cement and strengthen the dominance of the U.S. dollar in the international markets. Everyone everywhere wants dollars. It's kind of absurd to think about it. Like, why would you want dollars? I, I don't know. I don't even have a good answer for that. But nonetheless, you know, there are countries around the world with people that desperately want dollars. That's yep. what they want. Yep. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. Even with webcast, people join and they're like, well, is there a way to do this with Bitcoin? Or is there a way to do this with dollars? Yep. You know, people, people want dollars. <laughs> yep. Well, no. And that's why, that's why I'm glad we covered the side chains. And that's why I'm glad like we talked about webcast and that that's why when I brought up the example of agree with all the benefits of bearer assets, it's frustrating that you don't receive better terms as an individual. You don't receive better terms on your purchases when you're paying with a bearer asset. You, if I'm paying for my groceries with an IOU on credit or paying with a bearer asset, the grocery store gives me the same price. I'm more frustrated about that than I am even about the friction or non-friction of delivering the payment. Because if I'm a responsible financial individual and I'm delivering the bearer asset to the person, I should receive a benefit for that. And the entrepreneur should be like almost like I just feel like the incentives should be there for them to do it, which obviously they're not obviously with the way I, the current I think, systems. Yeah. I, I think, I think largely we've seen like discounts for pay with Bitcoin, mainly from like ideological merchants. Mm -hmm. And the reality for most merchants is that they have built into their cost structure, the fees that credit cards charge. Mm -hmm. And I think that for most merchants who don't have an ideological interest in like new technology and new payment methods, they kind of don't want to recompute their pricing structure for these alternative assets because, you know, they already consider this like wh whatever the fee is from the credit card company or whatever impacting their business. They already yep. consider that. And, you know, what incentive do they have to really like raise or lower that for different Anyway, it's complicated. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%, which is why. So it's like when I'm envisioning the future of payments, my like base guess right now in my brain is what I explained, like the the sticker that says the like, here's the three side chains or L2s of of you know, of the options available that are like the main ones my processor set up to take. And then here's where st all prices are still in dollars, but it's like, here's the price for paying with the bearer asset. 
here's the price for paying with like credit. And it's basically like, if you're going to use a legacy credit option, then you're paying an increased price. It's like a gas station, like where the, you have the credit price for the gas and then you have the cash price for the gas. That's where I could see the intersection of the like, I'm trying to think about, that's my case for the short to medium term of where the demand for dollars is, exactly how you said, combined with the current options of side chains and open source versus commercial payment processor, like software. That's like that medium term. You know, stepping back for a moment, I would say one interesting player that I think might be likely to go a very long way in solving these problems is Stripe. And I think Stripe has been expanding into different areas of payments. I mean, they got into treasury recently, banking a little bit. Um, I think, you know, it's quite easy to, to imagine them going into things like invoice financing and other services for merchants where they need to like financialize their, their business, B2B payments, B2C payments, all sorts of things. Um, to get more liquidity faster or to move money around faster, whether that's using stable coins or not. I think Stripe is an interesting player that might um, that might make some moves in that, that area. But again, I mean, there's all sorts of other companies out there too. Yeah. Oh, agreed. Agreed. So, all right, our final two questions of the episode and transitioning on the topic, you have this great tweet. Um, a couple of people were talking about so it, I believe this. I believe the thread started in reference to the Cinder Lamas bill talking about um, just definitive exemption and commodities and different things in her terms of the bill. And this this person says laws that would treat Bitcoin, a peer to peer electronic cash system, as a security or a commodity rather than a currency seem fundamentally hostile. Adoption by countries and by people accepting it for payments underscores that Bitcoin is a currency. And people kind of have a discussion. And then you make um, what I think is a good point, and I want to hear you expand on it. The security commodity distinction is kind of arbitrary. And what matters for society is going after fraud, regardless of what a thing is or isn't classified as. What do you mean by that? Talk to us about that. Well, you know, it sort of stems from my frustration of hearing people talk about the SEC regulating, you know, certain coins and securities and the CFTC regulating commodities and there being different rules if you're a commodity or if you're a security and, you know, what is a security? There's the Howey test and, you know, if you squint your eyes, it sort of seems like everything's a security under the sun. You know, am I a security or are you a security? I don't, I don't know. Um uh, and so, you know, these distinctions, I don't, I don't know if they actually like, you know, matter. I think that the reason why we have these distinctions is mainly of a historical nature. Like this is just how our economy developed and how we put rules around, around these things. Um, and, and maybe it's time to, you know, redo all these regulations and figure out how do we want to finance to work as a society. And, you know, if you're, if there's like some sort of fraud occurring, you know, why on earth would it matter if the fraud is about a commodity such as oil or a currency such as Bitcoin or a security such as Apple stock? What difference does it make? I just can't even comprehend why does it matter what it is? If you're committing fraud or there's some sort of scam, that's that's a problem. And and then you get into like some other weird questions, though, like, you know, in the security side, um, you're supposed to do all these sorts of disclosures and registrations and ask for permission, not for forgiveness sort of stuff. And, you know, that's, that's almost like preemptive stuff where you haven't even done anything wrong yet. And you're supposed to be meeting all of these requirements and, you know, having some standards to suggest, you know, what sort of disclosures uh, maybe you should make. That's certainly interesting. Um, but 
anyway, I just think it's time to really rethink, you know, what are we trying to achieve here with this regulation? You know, are we trying to, you know, act um, uh, to restrain human activity up front and prevent certain human behaviors and certain trades or certain assets from existing? Or are we trying to regulate and come up, come to an idea of an understanding of what happens, you know, after something goes wrong? And, you know, this idea that, you know, there, there is a little bit of an idea of, hey, the regulators should stop the financial markets from collapsing or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't, I don't even think that's a capability anyone has. Mm-hmm. You know, I, don't, I don't think you can have an authority figure that is endowed with this ability to stop a market from crashing or to mm-hmm. roll back time and make something not happen that did happen. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, what are we really trying to achieve here? Right. And mm-hmm. I think I think especially in the cryptocurrency industry, there are a lot of scams and there are you know a lot of fraudsters out there. Um, and I think we just need to have a more comprehensive understanding of how are we going to approach this? You know, we can't have a society that rewards fraudsters. You know, when you have selective enforcement, I mean, there's very good reasons to have selective enforcement where a prosecutor can, you know, take pity on someone or, or whatever. But when you have selective enforcement against fraudsters, you know, you actually are creating almost a perverse financial incentive to be a fraudster, which, yeah. which is not good for making like a, for, I don't know if you've heard the saying, like human society is like a garden and you're welcomed mm-hmm. into the garden and there are certain rules of the garden. But mm-hmm. you know, meanwhile, we have these actors just like navigating the garden by like jumping over walls that, yeah. you, know, you know, it wasn't it, Your Your answer reminds me of one other thing that I wanted to ask you. It So I've tweeted this before, and you know this even better than I do. It's like humans, like we have the ability to write software faster than bureaucrats can like write lines of like regulations. Like, and I, what your answer also makes me think of, or what I would maybe hope, think that you believe is like, and there's also, it's also easier to get the software like accurate than it is to get the like regulations like accurate. Um, What's your reaction to that? I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, first of all, can bureaucrats produce legalese at an impressive rate? I'm pretty sure they could. <laughs> uh, they don't, thankfully. Um, I don't know. I think I think at the end of the day, there's like no free lunch, and you know the problems of creating secure, verifiable, correct software are mm-hmm. quite hard, mm-hmm. and the problem of creating rules for uh, regulating human interaction that are clear and mm-hmm. principled and stand out to certain principles is also very hard. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's why we have the three body system in the United States yeah. where we have uh, different parties overseeing other parties and trying to regulate it on an ongoing basis, right? Because you yep. can't even set up the whole system up front. And we've decided that the way to do it is an ongoing thing where we try to resolve issues as they come up. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm definitely more on the software side and, uh, getting stuff correct is, is very, very difficult. And I, I can only imagine that getting stuff correct on the, on the political side is also extremely daunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say to, or what's your advice to any like young people thinking about going into software development, uh, even outside of Bitcoin, or you can bring in Bitcoin, but I just want to ask you is like, you know, like software is eating the world, like software is involved in everything, you know, just all, every, all of computer science up to this point. What are your thoughts for like young people and also like parents of young people thinking about the future of just education, things like that? What do you, what would you well, say to young people? 
at a very high level, I would say that programming is a new form of literacy. And in, in the forthcoming world, you don't, you're not going to have to be a developer, but you should have some literacy of programming. And the literacy of programming is really the literacy of using computers. They're very related. If you can use a computer, you can tell a computer what to do, whether by clicking buttons or typing commands. And so having some exposure to programming in some capacity, I think is highly, highly important. That doesn't mean you have to go and become a developer or whatever, but you know, just like uh, people who read books don't have to become authors, right? I mean, you read books for pleasure or for other reasons to learn things, you know, but that doesn't mean you have to become an author. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would definitely say, like, think of programming as as a new form of literacy. Yeah. Yeah. What? All right. So to wrap up the show, what is a Bitcoin product or service that doesn't exist yet that you wish did exist? You know, when you when you ask that question, I, I went and looked through my my list of projects. You know, I have a whole list <laughs> of here are things that don't exist that really should exist. And and one thing that um I think you'd be interested in is um I think you know we're at this point where like we have we don't really have bare assets for stocks or securities anymore, but you know we can imagine we could get there at some point. But in the meantime, what do we do? And so one idea is it would be possible to make a platform that does verifications of stock ownership in the same way that uh, Yodly or um, what's the other one? The, the ones where they take your password and they log into your bank account to do your authentication. Um, well, anyway, Yodly was one of them. and There were a few others. Um, doing that with stock portfolios would be able to have a, a, some platform sign off and say, hey, you own these five stocks and you know can, you can kind of convert it to, it's not quite bare, but you can still like display them or uh, do other operations based off of that data. And I, I think that that would be an interesting project to try. Perfect. Perfect. Brian, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for just talking to us and uh, the audience. Where can people um, find you? Yeah, find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash K-A-N-Z-U-R-E. And you can check out Webcash at webcash.org. And you know what? In the, in the chat over here for this video, I'm going to just paste some Webcash. Here's your demo. You know, and I, in a blink of an eye, you missed it, but I just sent him some webcash. <laughs> Love it. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, we'll catch you guys on the next one. Hey, all, this is Brian. You can reach me on Twitter, at Brain Harrington. Shoot me a DM with any feedback from today's episode. This has been a Choice App production. Bitcoin is becoming centric to personal finance, and we want to help you learn how to better engage with Bitcoin financial services. None of this is financial advice, and is for education and entertainment only.